they did uh, change that Enterprise song, like in season two or three. It got a little better, but it's still bad. Well, they just changed it to a more upbeat version. Yeah, yeah. It sounded more like a sitcom theme song with the way they, they redid the instrumentation. gonna knock you out cone ma said knock you out welcome everybody to southpaw deep space nine i'm angel marty this is the show where i uh take my lovely friend southpaw sam on a journey into star trek fandom where we watch every episode of star trek deep space nine uh the most communist star trek and just uh analyze it uh it is it this is a star trek podcast that services a very underrepresented and very underserviced demographic, which is leftists who are not already Star Trek fans. So it's a necessary service. Yeah, today's episode is going to be uh, past prologue, season uh, one, technically episode three, but whatever, the Netflix order. But intruder alert, we have a guest (laughs) on today's episode. We have... Welcome, host of the Tribunus Plebis podcast. Welcome, Sean, to the pod. Hey guys, I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you on, Sean. Hey, do you want to just uh, talk briefly about your relationship to Trek and to Deep Space Nine specifically? Yeah, I consider myself to be a a pretty enthusiastic Star Trek fan, but I wouldn't say I'm a super hardcore Trekkie. But uh, I'm particularly fond of Deep Deep Space Nine. I think it's the best uh, series that they put out. I love it from beginning to end. It's absolutely the best series. Uh, and I really like this particular episode, too. So I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, no, this one's going to... I think one of the things that makes Deep Space Nine such a uh, good fodder for discussion is because, you know, there are plenty, especially online, uh, of spaces where everybody's just sort of accepted the idea that, you know, yeah, Star Trek is like a communist piece of science fiction. And I think, as I said in some of the previous episodes, it is good to note that a lot of the like full on out and out communist interpretation of Star Trek is aspirational to a degree. And so we have to, it is still a product of capitalist media and it is still worth dissecting the actual messages that are in the text. So uh, let's just jump right into past prologue. Now we, we start the episode with another chapter of the adventures of Dr. Horny. <laughs> One of my favorite sub stories within Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But, but it's not, the, it's not Julian Bashir who's coming on strong in this scene. This is where he first meets Garrick. Now, if you've all, if, you know, everybody who's an online lefty who already is a fan of Deep Space Nine already has plenty of opinions about Garrick. But for Sam, for somebody who's watching this for the first time, what are your first reads of Garrick? Garrick to me reads very like coded queer. Absolutely. Okay, so that's not just me. No, I say that just because of like writing conventions and even like acting styles. There's certain ways that certain uh, characters speak or act that you know the writer and actor is trying to convey that this person is queer. No, you're 
you're picking up what the actor was putting down because Andrew Robinson, uh, the the um, the actor who plays Garrick, uh, has definitely said in interviews that he uh, tried to drop like gay subtext and homoerotic tension into uh, his scenes with Bashir because he liked the idea of it being sort of a you know home of a of a homosexual relationship because uh, it was still. And and uh, if anybody's watched the Renegade Cut video on Berman track talking about Rick Berman's sort of uh, uh, limitations and influences on '90s track, um, he may uh, the the maker of that video. I actually don't know their their pronouns. Uh, they make a really good um, uh, point about how while there had been plenty of other ga- uh, gay characters like out and open gay characters on other TV shows by this point, like. Openly queer characters were still uh, untread ground uh, in Star Trek. And so uh, Garrick and Sean uh, uh, definitely um, let me know your feelings on Garrick. But like, I think he's sort of become, uh, I I think as far as like characters from Deep Space Nine, that the LGBT community uh, has developed a special um, affection for, aside from Dax, who we discussed a lot in the last episode. Uh, episode of this podcast garrick is absolutely one of them well he is absolutely one of my favorite characters on the show andrew robinson just absolutely kills this role from like beginning to end like he comes out strong like you know a lot of uh the characters i feel like they took a little time to build up and find their you know find their footing like i think particularly bashir was that for me but garrick just comes right out the box as an awesome character and, you know, the queer coding thing is it's not something that I first thought when I saw this series. And it wasn't until maybe, I don't know, maybe like the third or fourth um, season where I, where that thought kind of popped into my head. But it, it never really struck me as extremely strong. I'm, I might just not have a good eye for this kind of stuff, <laughs> but um, I definitely noticed it. We'll put it. We'll put in a maintenance request for your gaydar, Sean. All right. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like to be fair, the first time I ever watched Deep Space Nine, I was like in in elementary school, so I didn't notice it either. But like me, even just watching it as an adult, to me, it's just like, well, one of the things I note. So in this scene, is like he's approaching Bashir of all people and like wanting to like get to know him, and for me just thinking of like, just trying to separate myself from what I already know about the show. I feel like um, my first question would be, uh, you know, well, why would Garrick, if he was a spy, you know, be approaching Bashir of all people, because, you know, he's not somebody that close to the command structure. And so like, clearly he has some, clearly he just likes the fact that he's a hot little young, you know, young buck. And so, (laughs) As we proceed from that scene, uh, Bashir, of course, uh, he's charged with new relationship energy and wants to tell everyone in ops about his date. And uh, and uh, uh, Dax actually says this exactly what I thought. He was just like, why would if he's a spy, why would he talk to the doctor? But we also but then we sort of get a neat little um, a further development of something that was planted about Bashir's character in uh the first episode is that he's very much like looking for adventure you know he wants to be doing frontier medicine and he very clearly uh is hoping that some like uh 
you know, glamorous, sexy action happens to him. And he like jumps at this opportunity to, uh, you know, feel important and feel significant. So I guess if you absolutely, absolutely, just for the sake of your own peace of mind, needed to find some non-gay interpretation of the Bashir-Garrick relationship, I guess you could just say it's because he understands that Bashir is very easily like man- manipulable in that way. Like this, this aspect of Bashir is my favorite part, especially of like the early, early episodes of the first season, because he's super excited and nervous <laughs> and, you know, just like, oh, my God, he's talking to me. And then he runs onto the, um, what do you call the, not the bridge. The ops. It's not the bridge. It's ops. Yeah. He runs around ops, just telling everybody, like you said, like that new, new uh, relationship energy. He asked me. He asked me. Yeah, he even volunteers to wear a tracking device. <laughs> it, it's it's great, and, and you know my favorite part of that whole exchange was just when Garrick is just as plain, simple, Garrick. Oh yeah, you know it's just a great little little line. Also, uh, this isn't too spoilery, but uh, about DS Nine itself. But for anybody who's uh, who's interested in sort of fan made. Uh, extra like fiction and stuff there is a fan-made series called alone together that was specifically created during created during the beginnings of the covid pandemic that stars uh alexander siddig uh who at this point in the series is still credited as siddig il fabiel um because he's uh i believe he's um british born to uh syrian parents but uh but alexander siddig and andrew robinson and they play like uh they do play a story as Garrick and Bashir set like in as many years after the events of deep space nine, as it is, as it has been years since the show went off the air. And uh, in that series, they do like, you know, straight up uh, both, both the characters do straight up, you know, admit that they are at the very least bisexual. (laughs) So, so that's, it's called alone together. So if you want some, you know, good Garrishier fulfillment, uh, definitely search (laughs) that on, on YouTube. So Bashir is being given his first chance at adventure, potentially. But we've got a damn Cardassian ship firing on a damn Bajoran ship in damn Bajoran space. There's a chase happening right outside the station where a Cardassian ship is firing on a Bajoran ship escaping. And since the occupation is over, this should not be happening. And the Bajoran ship is almost destroyed, but... Cisco orders that the one uh, passenger of the ship uh, gets beamed on before it gets blown up. And we see that uh, this individual is named Tana Los, and he knows Kira. So that's how we cut to the uh, opening credits. We've, uh, and we and as we come back, we find out that Tana Los and Kira were in the underground resistance together. So we have, uh, much like uh, a man alone, we have another uh, person coming back who was. Uh, Active during the uh, Bajoran resistance to the Cardassian occupation. He does not have as fun of a name to say as Ibudan, though, I have to say. Tanalos, not as fun to say as Ibudan. <laughs> However, thinking about how the actress is, uh, uh, who plays Kira is named Nana Visitor, I just like to think how their couple name could be Tana Nana. <laughs> so I don't know if it happened uh, while he was still aboard his ship or after he was beamed onto DS9, but 
already the language was very much about terrorism. Yes. And that stays consistent the whole time. They don't ever call him a freedom fighter. Absolutely. It's yeah. this painting of liberationists as terrorists. Also, Cisco asked Kira very early on where your allegiances are. It should be to the Federation over Bejor. So it sounded very much like centrist bullshit again that we talked about in the previous episodes. Yes. It also made me think about modern Marvel writing where, oh, yeah. you know, they do some things right and some things interesting, but then you can see the clear bias of the writers, which is to always shift things toward yeah. centrism. Uh, yeah, I think it's safe to characterize that. The rest of the story that we are in for is very much uh, heavy on the centrism. <laughs> I actually kind of enjoyed the, the sort of overall theme of the rebels or freedom fighters and revolutionaries kind of trying to deal with actually winning and, and, you know, being forced to decide if they kind of go out and continue to fight their oppressors, even after they've left like Tana did, or, you know, if those oppressors are gone, should they be involved with the new government like Kira does or, or even like, you know, should they just become farmers and merchants or, religious people yeah so the next few so let's let's keep going through the through the episode here as so the next few scenes after we come back uh, from the credits we learn that uh tonalos and kira knew each other from being resistance fighters and the uh commander of the uh cardassian ship hails deep space nine he demands extradition of the bajoran calling him a member of the Konma, who we learned that is what uh, that was a was and still is a notorious terrorist cell as they keep calling it and uh cisco uh knowing that uh tana has asked him for political asylum uh does keep the cardassians at bay he doesn't uh play overt collaborator right ahead uh but after talking to the cardassian commander uh kira and cisco talk and cisco does uh pull the whole first off he refers to uh tana murdering Cardassians. He specifically uses the term murdering and not even spe specifying if they were Cardassian civilians or, or military, and then pointing out that they had uh, assassinated members of the Bajoran provisional government. Uh, Kira says that Tana needs to be, uh, Tana and members of the Kon Ma need to be repatriated to Bajor because, according to her, Bajor needs men like Tana Los. Uh, and and that also, and this was an interesting point because I want, Sam, I wanted to ask uh, some history knowledge for you, from you, is that Kira says that the key to building a unified and independent Bajor means repatriating the splinter groups that arose during the occupation. So it seems like there were a lot of different groups uh, of different tendencies that arose as, you know, different responses to the Cardassian occupation. And now post-independence, there seems to be a specific crisis of trying to reconcile the disparate groups. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash with this example of like an independent bejor in my mind it still seems like quote unquote independent 
because Cardassians are still there because especially because of the wormhole. Now they really have a reason to really be adjacent to them and still be very involved in that region. Like even like when the uh, U.S. says they leave a certain area, then you find out they never really left. They still have military outposts there and they still have like impact and influence in that region. So in our universe or in our planet, I don't know if we've ever gotten that chance that you could claim absolute victory over a hegemon. A lot of online fighting amongst the left is theoretical. Like, how will we do this? Right. Yeah. But actually having done it, like you could point to countries like, let's say Cuba, for instance, but are they still free from U.S. impact? Like the Americans are still in Guantanamo Bay. I think probably the most intended analog here that comes to mind is just like Middle Eastern countries like, you know, oh, you know, uh, how are we going to get, you know, the Sunnis and the Shias in Iraq to cooperate so that way the provisional government can take over? And of course, you know, things just, the, you know, the, the, the truth is they don't. And there just is continued, continued conflict. Which is kind of going back to this kind of centrist bullshit again. In my mind, if these are liberationists, I'm thinking about like a post-colonial event where now colonizers are gone and now it's like trying to get different revolutionary tendencies together. Whereas I saw the parallel the writers were probably trying to draw, which was like comparing it to whoever they considered to be like, you know, Middle East threats or enemies and, you know, how to bring these kind of extremist factions together. In this whole discussion of the oppressors leaving, um, like I can't think of a real world example either. But what I can probably think of and what we all probably could is if an empire leaves for whatever reason they're defeated they're they think it's not worth it what usually happens is another empire comes in yep and that's exactly what happens here right which is kind of tana's point that we've gotten rid of the oppressors the cardassians but immediately like as soon as they leave another Another hegemon, another galactic empire, from his view at least, depending how generous we are, moves right in. And now they're dominating them. Yeah, so actually, so the first conversation where we start sort of getting on that is, uh, so Tana gets beamed aboard uh, the ship, asks for asylum. Uh, Cisco set, tells the Cardassians he hasn't uh, officially granted it yet, but is considering it. Um, so we cut to sick bay where, because Tana Los is male, Dr. Bashir isn't trying to fuck him and is actually giving him proper care. Uh, <laughs> but so during the conversation, so Kira, you know, tells uh, Tana uh, that she's, quote, still fighting for Bajor, uh, still fighting for Bajor in my own way. There's already a bit of guilt in her voice as she says that. So Cisco's sort of grilling uh, Kira, uh, Tana actually uh, asked Kira to leave them alone because she does, he, uh, he can already sense that this is their previous relationship is going to be an issue. And he sort of uh, grills uh, Tana to see if, uh, you know, he is as um, dangerous as the Cardassians say he is. And he says he, he had, he, his initial response is, is to the question of like, has, did he kill Cardassians after the occupation ended? And his response is he's, not sure why he did it anymore, and he's had uh, enough of the killing. So it seems. So it seems like in this in this situation, the writers are trying to use the fact that Tana wants to reject his violent ways as a way to reassure the uh, as a way to reassure the audience that he's supposed to be sympathetic. Because it, even though they're already you know showing him being pursued by the Cardassians, uh, 
that are established as like the villains of the series. But because they have, because Cisco has gotten an admission out of him that he committed terrorist acts like outside the rules of the game, they have to like, in order for him to not immediately be written out as a villain, they have to say that he, you know, doesn't want to be violent anymore. It's like very early, like, don't punch a Nazi or like anti-fascists are just as bad. Right. Going to your point about Cardassians are painted as the bad guys. But for the sake of civility, even if they're painted as like in previous episodes, we talked about how they're parallel to the Nazis. You don't punch a Nazi. You don't attack them. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you punch a Nazi, you're being just as bad as a Nazi. So Kira to uh, Kira is already sort of causing problems because uh, she doesn't like that uh, uh, Cisco is being so uh, uh, adversarial to Tantalos right off the bat. So we see her going straight to a Starfleet admiral about the situation, which we know that Cisco won't appreciate. The Cardassian ship docks with Deep Space Nine, and here's where we get uh, O'Brien first uh, sort of revealing some of his previous experience to Cisco, uh, and says that uh, you know you don't you don't want to tr- get too trusty with the Cardassians because they're brutal in a way that you'll never know. Uh, I think I, one of the things I do find um, charming about O'Brien is that he's not always trying to position himself as uh, enlightened as the rest of the Starfleet crew. Chief O'Brien in this scene, you kind of see the first inklings of, you know, his hatred of Cardassians and maybe like to the best I can recall, like the first really openly bigoted Starfleet person. Right. <laughs> but it, it is. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like it it makes his character interesting because like, you know, it's it's not it, it is not a bigotry formed out of, you know, just personal hatred. It's because like he has basically been on the opposite side of military engagements with these people you know, and, uh, and, uh, it's sort of, he, uh, you know, I, I feel like very much like, especially because he's a commissioned officer. He's not, he's not an enlisted person. He's a chief, his official rank is chief petty officer. So I feel like Miles O'Brien is definitely like the working class blue collar dude of, of deep space nine. And, and I feel like that just like adds flavor to the show in that, like, it kind of is boring when you try to portray humanity as like already moved past all of its problems, which, you know, the original series did that, you know, and try, tried to do that. They're like all humanity had moved past bigotry and racism. But the problem is then it's like you just offload all of the problems of humanity that you want to comment about onto whatever alien of the week you're dealing with. And on a show like Deep Space Nine, where we want to give a lot more dimension to our alien characters, we then have to restore some of those offloaded dimensions to our uh, human characters. So we have another conversation uh, with Kira and Tana where um, after, uh, number one, after the Admiral immediately reports back to Cisco that Kira uh, was, uh, was tattling to her about him because I don't know why Kira thought that the Starfleet people wouldn't stick together. <laughs> I guess, I guess she was just like, I'm going to do the sa- closest thing I can to telling your mom that you're misbehaving. Um, but, uh, but Kira talks to Tana and there's uh, there this time Tana takes a little bit more of a, 
baiting tone. Like Kira is definitely, uh, um, you know, trying to defend the fact that she's working within the system. And Tana is just basically insinuating that she's lost her old edge and that might not entirely be a good thing. And then starts to, to talk about how, um, you know, the Federation may not be the entirely benevolent presence that it claims to be, which I have to like. So this is where the ambivalence comes into to me about like the treatment of, you know, the the resistance and colonialism uh, and th- those kinds of themes in Deep Space Nine, because, you know, I mean. The answers that they, you know, pose at the end of the episodes always seem to be like, yes, the Federation is good mostly and that like, you know, violence is bad, but it does seem to at least like linger with asking the question a lot more than like works of fiction that touch on similar topics that are created by American authors. When the Admiral calls Cisco to narc on Kira, she calls her the Bajoran woman and basically like really came off like paternalism. Take care of your dog, Cisco. Yeah. Like Kira is this annoying child bothering the grown up. But then even in the way that she was actually portrayed, like she was tattletailing, like as soon as uh, something bad happens, she's like, oh, I, I need to tattletale on teacher. Right. The way it was written was written in some ways, consciously critical of the Federation and the Admiral in that scene. But at the same time, unconsciously, also still partaking in paternalism by writing her in such a way. And then the whole episode had this like patriarchy dynamic between like Tana Lo, Cisco and her. And she was the child in the scene or in this episode, even with like Odo later or like the woman in the scene, the Bajoran woman in the scene. So there was a lot of like conscious and unconscious things happening. Yeah, it is interesting that you say that because uh, like as I was, you know, watching it, it seemed like the first few scenes between Cisco and Kira, like them talking to each other, it did seem like Kira and Cisco were sort of both shown as having the same kind of power, like the sort of like uh, they, they they treated each other like they were on the same level, I think. And there was like sort of a uh, an equal push and pull where Kira was not like being written or being performed to throw in any kind of like more feminine mannerisms to sort of temper the fact that she's being very strong, you know, in a way that is, I, you know, usually, uh, you know, reserved for more masculine figures. But yeah, after, I, I think you're right, especially after the scene where she goes to the um, uh, Admiral and complains, she sort of does lose that, that strength a little bit. And as she deals with some of the other characters, I think, and I wonder if that's like supposed to reflect how her confidence is being slowly withered by Tana. There's a scene. There's another scene where the Cardassian captain comes in to talk to Cisco to demand Tana's extradition, and Cisco pulls the the. Uh, he says, like in war, both sides commit atrocities, which is like in in this in this instance, him you know, like using the centrism for good, I guess. Like him, like in this case, he is sort of like rebutting fascist whataboutism. You know, going back to the Kira thing, that this version of Kira is my favorite. She's distrustful of the Federation to some degree. She doesn't trust Cisco. She's combative about decisions. And this felt like a very, a very true character to me. And I, and I, you know, like as this season series goes on, I feel like she lost a little too much of that. And, you know, like, I won't disagree with anything that's been said so far. I I think it's, uh, 
like I agree with the paternalism stuff, like, you know, how it was written with the admiral and stuff. But at the same time, this was a fighter, right? Like a, a freedom fighter on her, like from birth. Yeah. That's why I have that continued ambivalence. Cause it's like, okay, you know, I mean, it, yeah, but it is, it is still cool that it's like, they show Kira as like having legitimate reasons to be distrustful of like the good guys and, you know, not be like completely convinced of the Federation's positive intent, even if like they do sort of, you know, uh, uh, convince her, you know, in the end. Uh, but so it's like, you, you, yeah, I, to me, I'm always watching it with like, well, you know, there is this flaw to it, but how much would they have been able to get past Paramount and UPN had they not had to uh, temper it a little bit, I guess. All right. So as uh, as Tana and Kira debate uh, Kira's role in helping Bajor, we see some more returning characters. We have Lursa and Bator, uh, who, for if you don't know, they are members of the House of Duras, uh, who first appeared in the TNG episode, uh, season three, episode 17, Sins of the Father. Uh, they are brothers. They, they are sisters of a Klingon Duras whose father Toral had betrayed the Klingon Empire to the Romulans, framed the betrayal on Worf's father, uh, and uh, in several episodes, uh, um, the House of Duras tries to gain control of the Klingon High Council. So we already know uh, that um, that these are villainous if we are already Star Trek fans, and it seems that they are here to do business with uh, Tana Los. Uh, so this is where... I, to me, like, again, trying to watch it from fresh eyes, uh, this seems to be the, the, the writer's admission that, okay, we're going to find out that Tana is really a villain after all. And of course, the first meeting between uh, the uh, Klingons, Lursa and Bator and Tana Los, uh, is um, spied on by Odo because... You know, who cares about entrapment or or things like that in the 24th century? If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So, so to go back to the point about um, Kira kind of softening up as the episode goes on, uh, after it seems like Cisco is going to grant asylum to, um, to Tana and other members of the Kon Ma, so that way they can be reintegrated into Bajoran society. Kira's like almost to the point of obsequiousness, like thanking Cisco. And then Cisco reveals that uh, he knows that sh- she snitched on him to an admiral and then goes, go over my head again and I'll have yours on a platter. <laughs> Very much not a thing Picard would say. The way it paid off, right? It was like the admiral was obviously portrayed in a critical way to even criticize the federation at least that's how i read it and then in this scene it was like the opposite where it was like cisco became stronger in the scene and the federation seemed more like see i was right you should have just listened to me just trust me so it kind of seemed like a reversal of that early criticism 
Cisco definitely throws a lot of more complications into like some of some of the uh, straight up analog natures of, you know, the Federation being like the U.S. and stuff, because I think especially in later episodes, we'll definitely see Cisco is like not is has his own internal conflicts and he very much has a very clear moral compass, you know, uh, even when he, uh, you know, has to act according to his duty and, uh, you know, he Cisco kind of has the moral compass that like people like to think actual like military people and actual U.S. soldiers have. Like I'm sure a lot of people like to think Colin Powell was Benjamin Cisco. <laughs> so over the next few scenes, we sort of reveal that there's like uh, a, a tangled weave of different plots here where Tana uh, eventually goes mask off to Kira saying that he is planning another terrorist act and he's... um Try, he's meeting with the Klingons to buy supplies for a bomb, but then the Klingons also meet with Garrick because they know that he's a spy, and Garrick tries to pull uh, the I'm just a simple tailor routine. Uh, they immediately don't fall for his game, and they're just like, come on, you're a spy. We have a Bajoran resistance fighter to sell to the Cardassians. So eventually, Garrick, becoming aware of this whole situation, uh, invites uh, Bashir to come over to his... Uh, a tailor shop at a specific time to get into his pants at and then Bashir excited about having a second date uh goes to tell um Cisco about at the same time that uh Kira goes to uh tell Cisco about what she knows about the situation so before before that Kira has a conversation with Odo uh where she basically you know it very indirectly admits to Odo uh, her guilt about what to do about the situation. But I find it kind of confusing that Kira is so trustful and so close to Odo when we know that Odo worked as an officer on Terok Nor before it became Deep Space Nine. And that, like, to me, it seems more logical that Kira would... Um, you know, be distrustful of Odo as well as a collaborator. Like, why do you think we're shown um, Odo and Kira being so like trusting of each other when, yeah, I mean, they, in the conversation, Kira like says, you know, you don't have any more love for the Federation than I do, which is true, but for very different reasons. Sean, what, Sean, what do you think about that? I really dislike this scene <laughs> because of all those reasons. Like, even going deeper into the series there's no reason why so many people should be happy with odo you know i mean he was a collaborator no no matter how principled he was he was handing over bajorans by the dozens to people who were going to torture and kill them and yeah in, in this this relationship it makes no sense to me except maybe way further down the line i think there was a previous scene right before this where Odo even shows admiration still to the Cardassians when he talks about with justice how much simpler it was when he worked for them. And it was just like, you put them in jail and that's it. He says, you know, Cardassian rule may have been oppressive, but at least it was simple. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why I'm saying when Kira says, you know, Odo, you know, you have no more love for the Federation than I do. Like, it is very clearly established that there are reasons for disliking the Federation are completely different. Like Odo doesn't like the Federation because they don't let him throw people in the brig at his discretion. And Kira 
And Kira doesn't like the Federation because he's a, uh, she's afraid that they're going to just become new oppressors. Like, they are not the same. But for some reason, the writers decided that just because they both don't like the Federation, they should be considered to be on the same side. It's that centrist bullshit again. But on StarTrek.com, they did uh, last year during the whole like defund police, you know, the height of the anti-police protests, they did publish uh, an article that basically dealt with the question, does ACAB include Odo? You know, and and uh, I forgot if they if the writer, I think the writer like tries to, you know, land on the side of like, yeah, you know, Odo's not really an entirely uh, exculpable, sympathetic character because of like the role that he plays in systems of power. So I, at least, at least, you know, people who are official representatives of the Star Trek brand name have uh, given space in their branded zones for discussion of that topic. So they thought better of it later on. Yeah. But it seemed very much like, you know what? The only explanation I could come up with is uh, horseshoe theory, where to a centrist, they're like, oh, they're both opposite ends of the spectrum. So eventually they come together, right? I don't even know when (laughs) horseshoe theory was invented, but it seemed like a natural conclusion that centrists might come up with. Yeah. And Odo was really the ultimate centrist in this show. You know, he was just like, no, I just go by whatever the rules are at the time. (laughs) I enforce them fairly. And therefore, I'm not bad. Well, it's interesting because in, the, in in A Man Alone, he says, like, the rules change with whoever makes them, but justice is justice. So, like, he claims, but I mean, I mean, you're right. He is very much by the rules, although he claims to be operating from some kind of consistent sense of justice. So Tana is going to rendezvous with the Klingons near one of the one of the moons elsewhere in the Bajor system. And uh, he's going to they're going to let Tana. Uh, steal a runabout, which for anybody who doesn't know what a runabout is, is basically like a larger version of a shuttlecraft. It's like a warp, it's a small warp capable uh, ship. And they're going to let St- Tana steal one to make this rendezvous. And then Cisco and O'Brien are going to follow in another runabout uh, to uh, to catch them. Uh, so the the tension here is that Kira decides that she has to be on the runabout with Tana to allay his suspicions. So just, I mean, you know, t- just to wrap it up, I think really the, the thing that, that um, you know, matters here is that it's revealed that Tana Los is trying to blow up the Bajoran wormhole. So that way, you know, no people lose interest in the area. So that way, basically, Bajor has the room to just do their own thing without being a center of economic, you know, exploitation, essentially. And we're still taught, we're still told by the show that that's still bad. You know, Kira even makes an impassioned plea <laughs> to just be like, you're just hurting Bajor. And this is where like, I'm just like, I'm back on Tana's side completely. I think we've mentioned it in our first two episodes where it feels like, at least so far, they might break this convention, but there's like the main plot. And then there's like the philosophical question. And there's even a line around here where uh, I believe it's Kira speaking to Tana and one of them says that they want to see Bajor for Bajorans. That was a great line. That's like a line from a lot of the colonial movements. Like Koreans used to say that they wanted Korea for Koreans. In fact, Koreans are still waiting for that, right? Yeah. In my in, in my notes, I have uh, Bajor for Bajorans equals third world nationalism! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. And then going back to your point about joining Tana, it's kind of like Marvel writing where the villain has good points, but then they still like make him an asshole in other ways, right? Yep. <laughs> like he makes this great point about what he wants to do. And then he like just blasts Kira in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The nice palm strike. But Again, it's like, well, number one, it wasn't a closed fist punch, so he works like a face. You know, he's not he's not working like a heel. Sean, what did you want to add? Uh, yeah, my comment was kind of running in parallel with Sam's a little bit, but it was just that I really enjoyed the theme in the you know the f- philosophical question of sort of trying to decide if your world in this case or country, you know, in our world, should enter the galactic or the world stage, um, and to do that, though, you have to kowtow to some sort of empire or hegemon, you know, to be there. Or if you should just be happy being, you know, a relative backwater planet, I guess, I don't, you know, an independent but relatively weak in the broader scheme of things. And I think it's a really interesting question to dive into. Yeah, it's like debating the question, you know, like, you know, China, you know, is a communist country, but it still has to play the game of capitalism in order to survive in the worldwide economy. With Tana. He just wanted to end the exploitation and give other nations, other alien races, for them not to have a reason to come here anymore and just leave the Bajorans alone. And for Kira, I think just from her lines, it sounds a lot more like neoliberal bullshit where she just wanted, you know, the country to get rich and get powerful and sounded like reformist. But if we don't take what she says literally and just think about also from the other perspective, if you don't have power, actually, then other countries can come back and bully you anyway, right? Like to your earlier point, to have power in this reality that we all live in, in this global economy, you have to play capitalism to some degree. Not just countries, even small orgs are just leftists online. You're still working as part of the capitalist economy. If you don't need to work, then your family is real capitalists who've accumulated wealth, which you're benefiting from. Even when you do mutual aid in a decentralized, quote-unquote, autonomous way, you are still paying each other in the currency of the world's capitalist superpower. And that is the only reason your mutual aid has any value because of the value of that capitalist U.S.-backed fiat currency. So don't get it twisted. To me, in my head, I'm just thinking, like, if this were an anime, like, blowing up the Bajoran wormhole would be like the finale, like what the hero does. It's like, it's like um, Edward Elric deciding at the end of Full Metal Alchemist to just give up his alchemy. <laughs> like that just seems like the ideal protagonist sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, you can't compare anime to American sci-fi. I mean, that's just not <laughs> fair, right? <laughs> Watch me. Yeah. But you could easily rewrite this episode or, you know, this whole series as the plucky freedom fighters blow up the wormhole in the end the death star right it's right there it's right there it does make me really interested in what the writers were thinking because it's just like if you wanted to just have it the episode end with oh tana was really a bad guy after all you to me if i were in that position i would just write him as wanting to blow up the station you know and wanting to kill uh you know civilians because that would be you know more unambiguously like yeah we've got to stop this guy um but in but but because he very clearly is not trying to kill anyone and just sabotage uh you know and what gives you know the area uh interest to stronger economic powers it's just i i mean like even i i can't put myself in my in in the mind of my pre-radicalized self 
I can't go back to how I watched this, you know, the first time when I was, you know, 10 years old. But like, I just can't imagine watching even then thinking like, oh, he's just going to blow up the wormhole. That's not, it's not that bad. So like, I, I, to, so to go how, to how this episode ends, you know, like there's a scene where uh, Kira, you know, her, one of her parting lines to Tana as he's getting taken away is, one day you'll understand, which made me go, Bleh. like I could hear that, <laughs> like it sounded like it came right out of Hillary Clinton's mouth. <laughs> yeah, I think she says, you'll, I hope you understand why I had to do this or something. And, and I just have to think like, okay, you know, you know what? I have to applaud that the writers at least are giving me enough room to feel like there is some ambiguity in, in their treatment of the, of the subject line, even though it just feels like on the surface, it is very much in the centrist, you know, uh, violence is bad, no matter what it's in the service of. Just the way that they have set it up the whole way. The way they concluded it is like about as good as I could expect it. Meaning she had that line. And then actually, I think Tana Los had the final line where he said, traitor. And then it just kind of ends right there. There's nothing else. Like Emissary, like a man alone, it kind of ends things more like abruptly. So you have to fill in your own blanks and dots in your mind. So it's kind of like, okay, so then what are we supposed to draw from here? Like, was he the bad guy? What's going on? And they don't really answer that. And I appreciate that they just left it there so that we can just kind of discuss this it was a good ending actually it was very good but when he walks by and says traitor it hurt her because she's at this point in the show she's still extremely conflicted about about where to stand what to do you know who to be with and all of that and the last thing i wanted to point out is that at the end of the day odo still took his arm and walked him away to put him away he is a cop all cops are boneless (laughs) but sean had a good point about uh kira being hurt because the most interesting thing for me about this episode as far as writing goes is her mini character arc in this episode where basically everybody beat her up metaphorically beat her up and shit on her right the admiral cisco yelling at her even odo kind of betrayed her because she was just trying to have this like talk and confidence and i trust you and then all of a sudden he betrays her trust again and narks on her to cisco again just like the admiral did and then at the very end the deepest cut is her old friend calls her a traitor so she just got fucked up in this episode so that was interesting to watch also even the uh scene where she came in you know like bowed over her hands upturned in obeisance to cisco and says you were right he still cuts (laughs) her down yeah. Still chops her legs out. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so this is, um, you know, uh, the rare uh, Kira must suffer episode. It's the misogyny episode. That you know, it's, that's that's cool that you that you caught that because that was not foremost in my mind while I was watching it because I was more focused on like the you know the uh, the the whole terrorism language. But you're right, as far as from the individual character perspective, this is definitely like. It's raining shit on Kira Norris in this episode, (laughs) to paraphrase a line from uh, Basketball, one of my favorite comedy movies. So, uh, Sean, um, before we uh, end, I actually wanted to ask you, hey, can you tell listeners about Tribunus Plebis and the show that you host and and what that's all about and where they can find it? Yeah, um, they can find it anywhere that they listen to podcasts. Uh, we have a YouTube channel as well as Tribunus Plebis Media. And the show is focused on social and economic stuff, mostly a little bit of uh, politics, electoral stuff, 
but it, everything I try to um, have a focus on labor and union unionization, labor, labor rights, stuff like that. So please listen. Excellent. And of course, if you like this show, definitely check out the other shows on the Southpaw Podcast Network, including Southpaw, uh, Fight Study, which is a sub-series of Southpaw that covers uh, mixed martial arts and other combat sports events. We have Pride Never Die, which is mixed martial arts uh, from an LGBTQ perspective. We have Working Stiff Radio, which focuses on... Uh, pro wrestling. And then of course, if you subscribe on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash southpawpod, you can also get exclusive access to the Discord channel, uh, which is where Sam and I met and, you know, came up with the idea of this show. And also you can get uh, access to the uh, guest commentaries where, you know, different members of the Southpaw community can uh, do commentaries on uh, different kinds of combat sports that aren't really discussed. And I did a guest commentary introducing uh, some of the uh, interesting aspects of sumo wrestling. And then I, I did one on uh, uh, an old uh, Lucha Libre match and somebody did historical European martial arts. So, you know, the Southpaw Discord community is is uh, just a really fun place to be. It's a very wholesome place to be. Next week, we'll be covering uh, the uh, lovely uh, episode that contrasts very silly dialogue against very serious consequences. It's going to be Babel. Uh, that's going to be, I'm going to be so fucking silly on that one. So stay tuned <laughs> in the, and uh, until next time. Da-na-na-na, <laughs>